Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the American Shoreline Podcast coverage of the Atlantic Intercoastal Waterway Association. My name is Peter Ravel. I'm the co-host of the show. And uh, Tyler is here today. I hope he'll be jumping into this conversation. Uh, we've got three special guests with us here at from the AIWA conference to talk about one of the key parts of waterway management. If you're going to have a waterway, occasionally you're going to be moving material out of the channel. And the big question is, how do you manage that in an effective way that's, that is affordable and environmentally sound? Well, we have three of the pros who have been working on that project on the American Shoreline podcast today. And I want to introduce and welcome to the show Dr. Lenore Tedesco, who is the executive director of the Wetlands Institute in Stone Harbor, New Jersey. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Tedesco. Thank you. And Monica Chaston from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. She is the channel Navigation Channels Project Manager for the Coastal New Jersey and a Coastal Engineer by Training. Thank you very much for joining us, Thank you. Monica. And also Steve Rochette, who is the Public and Legislative Affairs Officer for the Philadelphia District of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and who was kind enough to set this interview up. Thank you very much, Steve, for making these smart people available to our audience thanks welcome. thanks peter welcome everybody well steve let's talk let's talk a little bit about why it is important that what the Corps is doing uh in its management of not just the atlantic intercoastal waterway but the work that you guys do up in the northeast part of the united states introduce our audience around the country to uh to the district well the district is what we call a coastal district we've got parts of maryland new york delaware new jersey and pennsylvania and we've got about 17 coastal storm risk management projects on the coast. So those are primarily dune and beachville type of jobs. They include some seawalls. Um, we've got back bay flooding studies that we're, we're looking at right now. And then the other big piece that we're here to talk about today is the New Jersey Intercoastal Waterway and the coastal dredging uh, activities that we're engaged in. And, and that's why we kind of consider ourselves a coastal district. For sure. And, uh, you know, Philadelphia is quite close to Cape May, New Jersey. I don't know. Does It looks, it's, it looks like a stone throw away from the project area that, uh, Dr. Tedesco, you're working on uh, with Monica Chaston. Uh, let me ask you guys, it seems to me that so much of the effort recently that's coming out of this part of the country in the core districts in the Northeast really is driven by Hurricane Sandy and the incredible event that that was for uh, this part of the American shoreline. Does anybody want to comment on, uh, yeah, uh, Steve, talk to us a little bit about what's happened with the Corps since Sandy, that uh, monumental storm event that really changed it. Yeah, we would describe it as a really transformative event. Um, It provided a tremendous amount of funding for us to complete a lot of those beachfield projects on the oceanfront. It launched a number of different studies that we're engaged in, and then it changed the way we sort of do business with our coastal dredging projects and placement. And that's what these two folks can tell you a lot about. Great. Well, let's talk about this because uh, there's the beachfront folks who, uh, in something we're familiar with down in Texas and in Florida, a lot of uh, uh, sediment management for shoreline restoration. We're, but here the focus is on the back bay. And we're talking about back bay flooding risk, we're talking about channel maintenance, and we're talking about marshes. Uh, it's not often, Dr. Tedesco, where the environmental community and, and organizations like yours work hand-in-hand hand with the Corps of Engineers. It's great to see this partnership. Why is it important for the Wetlands Institute to be engaged with the Corps of Engineers on these projects? 
Yeah, well, thanks. It's great to be here. Um, so I guess the way I would answer that is the Corps of Engineers is, you know, they're doing all the work, really, the, the big work of maintaining the Intracoastal Waterway. And the Intracoastal Waterway, from the Back Bay's perspective, in, in New Jersey, the Back Bay's are dominated by marshes. They're shallow lagoons and uh, shallow, narrow channels. And the only way we really get folks moving around and recreating and enjoying those back bays and marshes is their ability to, to in fact, navigate through those areas. Mm -hmm. So the, the Army Corps, is, the, is they're the ones that are going to be moving all the sediment. They're the ones that are doing all the work. And then the question is, how do we uh, work with them and partner with them to, to help think about new ways to move material and what to do with it? And um, we're in a situation now where, with sea level rise in coastal New Jersey, the marshes, the rate of rise is now exceeding marshes to keep up with sea level. Wow. So, which is a pretty bold statement to make, but when you look yeah. out there, and I look out over, you know, 6,000, 10,000 acres of marsh, and you can see they're repetitively flooded, they're underwater, they're waterlogged, there's, there's too much flooding happening out there. So, change is upon us, it's already happening, it's not a question of if, when, will, it is, it already has happened. So then the opportunity is, you know, I like to say sediment is the currency of these systems, they need sediment, Great that's phrase. how they keep up. So, Monica's got it, I need it. Let's get together and figure Next, out how right. to do something great. When did when did this partnership arise? And, and Monica, maybe you can help us out. Who approached who to make this happen? Um, because it typically, you know, there's been some adversarial. This is not just a, I, I don't know, really know enough about the, uh, the this region of the country, but around the United States, when it comes to wetlands issues, there's often been some tension between the environmental community and the Corps of Engineers because of the permitting. Uh, responsibilities that the Corps has in the channel maintenance, but it is exactly the right thing. I love what you said. This is the currency of the coast in this, in, all along the American shoreline, is this sediment is an asset. So, you know, how did you all get, to, get, to, get together? How did this happen? So I'll set the stage a little bit, um, and we just got a, a presentation where we talked about what we did back in the 60s and 70s with the sediment. Um, how we did a lot of open water placement that created great habit, habitat. And then in the 70s, um, some of the environmental regulations required us to put that beautiful, clean, fine grain and sandy material upland. So to take it and dispose of it into these um, facilities we call confined disposal facilities. Right. Um, at the same time, the Corps has a program that started in the early 2000s called Regional Sediment Management. And what that program is trying to get us to do is do better things with sediment. So this practice of throwing the material away out of the navigation channels, really yeah. um, changing the mindset and using it either to support the ecosystem or the beaches um, to do better things with it. So we've talked about it for a long time and nothing like a good storm like Hurricane Sandy to wake people up and yeah. make them realize that we don't need to be so risk averse. We need to be a little more innovative in what we're actually doing operationally. And we uh, developed three, I would say three primary pilot projects <clears throat> where we were able to start partnering with the state of New Jersey on um, Cape May, the Cape May Wildlife Refuge lands that they okay. had. So w the Corps came to them and said, can we place where we did back in the 60s or 70s? The channels are clogged now, post-Sandy, nobody can get through them. And um, I would say Mr. Dave Golden, who, who was a, a primary leader in this effort from the state of New Jersey, asked us to not place where we had before, but to consider partnering on some projects where we could do some more innovative work on degraded marshes. 
And he developed a team, which the Wetlands Institute is a part of, as a, as a, as a primary um, supporter of the work, and, and it's been growing from there. And so it is this combination of, I understand that Erdic is involved, the Wetlands Institute, the state of New Jersey, and the, and the Corps of Engineers. Is that the partnership that is focused on these back bay marshes and uh, trying to find a better way to use this material? Yes, definitely in the region that we're now calling the Seven Mile Island region. Um, we are, we've put several pilot projects on the ground, but now we're taking, trying to take it to the next level and look at a system of solutions so that when we, the Corps, have to dredge these uh, channels, we would have uh, repetitive placement areas where it really supports um, the work going on in the region. It's good to see the Corps thinking about the environmental part of this. Uh, Dr. Tedesco, if you could. Um, these, these back marshes uh, are, as you said, are, are drowning a little bit with sea level rise, and, and this water level, of course, is critical to the health of the marsh, and they can be destroyed by inundation, I guess, too. But we'll educate our audience. You're a, you're a biologist and, 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 and an expert on the subject. Talk to us about marsh health and about the management of this marsh and why this material that you're trying to get a hold of is so important. Sure, I'm happy to do that. So when you think about a marsh, um, you look out at a marsh, they build up, they actually do really well at keeping up with sea level. When we're at times of uh, slower rates of sea level rise, they build up and they kind of hold their position. If you want to think of a marsh, it is at sea level, okay? That's, that's what they do, they're smart. Yeah. They know where sea level is. And they upbuild by either building big root structures, they make a PD structure. If you walk around on a marsh, it should be pretty firm. You're not gonna sink into it because of all that root mat. But they're also, I like to think of them as shag carpets, hmm. right? They, have, they catch a lot of dirt, if you will. So yeah. every time mud's moving around in them, they capture sediment. So they build up by building roots or by trapping sediment. And the amount of upbuilding that they do is typically around four millimeters per year. And sometimes it's more than that if you've got a lot more sand of mud coming in from just the tidal channels. Or it could be a little bit less than that. Huh, um, four so millimeters a year. That is just a very, but that's sort of the natural propagation of the elevation upward. That's correct. Wow. So for the area we're talking about, it okay. varies with other places. Yeah, so, okay. um, so, we're not, so everything's great until the sea level rise rate starts to exceed four millimeters a year. And effectively, we're at that level. And somebody forgot to tell sea level it should do it gradually and easily and at the same time. So it bounces around. <laughs> well, see, like it's North higher Carolina, and lower. You guys should have passed a statute like they did in North Carolina to say you can't. No, I'm just yeah. joking. All my <laughs> friends in North Carolina. <laughs> I give them a hard time about yeah. that statute that they passed that said you can't consider sea level uh, projections past 30 years, which I thought, well, you know, anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the, so the sea level is rise rate is exceeding the natural sort of elevation uh, growth of the marsh. If they're inundated too much, they, did they die off? Yeah, so I like to think about that if you have a potted plant, right, okay. and you overwater it. Yeah. Right, it starts to grow slower and slower and slower. So you get this negative feedback loop. These okay. marshes are inundated, they get waterlogged, they actually start growing slower. They want to uh, be inundated a certain, I mean, marshes are supposed to be inundated, but not that deep, not yeah. that long, not that frequently. So we're seeing increases in all of those things. The marsh grasses are starting to grow more slowly. Hmm. The first way you see that is starting to get stunted growth. So where you had really dense, thick, nice growth of, of marsh grasses, they're now a little bit thinner. They're starting to see open areas. You're starting to see the mud um, amongst them. And then you start getting these open patches in the marshes. That's kind of the way you can see that. So I see. if you've seen that a lot, you can just see it's just less vigorous growth of marshes. And it's and it is this negative feedback loop. And then once the grasses start to die, the mud and sediments that there, now I'm bringing more and more water in and out, those get washed out more. 
So it's okay. kind of a two-way story. People ask me, well, if sea level's rising, why are the channels filling, right? That's yeah. kind of a no-brainer. Well, the yeah. answer is the marsh is now degrading and it's washing into the marshes. So, so if you this- also look at an air photo and you see these giant mudflats and you can watch those mudflats building and building and building a lot of time, uh-huh. that is the material from the marsh. So wow. marsh this- gets lower, channels get shallower perfect relationship is perfect. I want to build marshes, yeah. Monica needs to clear channels, and, and sea level rise is, is exacerbating both aspects of that. So important right there is, is the physical and the biological understanding of the marsh. It retains sediment, and by holding the sediment in the marsh system and out of the channel, you're saving money for the waterway navigation folks and the folks who have to maintain it. That's the core and the American taxpayers. It seems so straightforward, but it took us a long time to get to this. I, I do remember when we were shifting to uh, confined upland disposal practices all along the Texas coast. And it it was considered to be the best environment. This was a very important thing for the environmental community in Texas uh, because of turbidity concerns and seagrasses and that kind of stuff. But now we're finding out, we've come through this. In in your career, uh, Monica, have you been part of this transition in thinking over the last 20 years where this has started to occur? Definitely. I think it's a good soapbox issue for me. Um, my background's in coastal engineering, and for many years I, I worked on the beaches where every grain of sediment is valuable, and yeah. every grain of sediment is, um, it's accepted that it be kept in the, in the system for the, for the ocean front. And now, uh, about 10 years ago, I moved to uh, managing, dredging the navigation channels where we were throwing it away. And it's painful, actually, to see good, clean material yeah. uh, being removed from the system where it just came from. Yeah. So I've definitely been an advocate for that in my role as project manager. Um, I've worked uh, heavily with the R&D programs coming out of the Corps of Engineers. That's the Regional Sediment Management Program, but also the Engineering with Nature programs. And I think some of the realization has been um, we have to get the cost down and the operational efficiency along with the permitting aspects to where we're not being over-restricted and can build these projects cost-effectively to keep them for the long-term sustainable. Some of that has been really taking a look at the natural processes, which is the next level of what we're moving into. So looking at how Mother Mother Nature might be able to move some of this sediment back to the marshes um, itself and do some of the work for us. So relocate the sediments out of the navigation channels, but use the natural processes to get it back to where where it belongs. Kind of a feeder berm kind of idea if you were on the beach. Definitely a feeder berm. Yep, exactly. That, that type of a concept, and um, it's, it, it, we're learning through the pilot projects, but if you can keep heavy equipment off the marsh and some of the over-containment, over-engineering that we've been looking at, even in some of these more recent pilots, mm-hmm. that that's probably the way to go, and that's, again, a win-win, because it's cost-effective, has operational efficiencies for us in the navigation program, yeah. but is less impact environmentally, too. But yeah. that takes some convincing of the permitting agencies yeah. to get there. Well, let, let's, there's so many things. That we, I want to talk about Seven Mile Island and, and the living lab idea that you guys are working on. I was fascinated by the origin story of the living uh, lab idea. And I think it was your conversation out in California. I've heard a little bit about it. Could you share that with our audience, how this living lab came about? Yeah, so through the Engineering with Nature program and the Corps Environmental Laboratory, I've been fortunate enough to 
participate with Dr. Todd Bridges in some of the international guidelines meetings that he has um, involved with natural and nature-based features. So we had one of these meetings out in Santa Cruz about a year ago um, where we would de were developing these guidelines along with other uh, agencies across the world. And a lot of these ideas are born at the dinner table or in the bar afterwards. And Great. I was fortunate enough to be sitting with the contingency from the Netherlands. Um, and we had gone through these pilots. We had a lot of success in terms of what we were already doing and changing the paradigm shift in New Jersey. But we still had quite a few obstacles remaining. Um, and so I, I think I was at a point where I was a little bit frustrated and where to go next, how to take this to the next level. And I asked uh, the, uh, the, our colleagues from the Netherlands, and they suggested looking at um, a living laboratory concept. Mm -hmm. And that would be kind of a forum where they, a collaborative forum where they bring all voices to the table and they add science to it. And they do these placements in terms of like a testing bed uh, yeah. where we learn from them we develop innovation we take some risk and try different things and adaptively manage it so um, they said google living mm. lab with mud and um, that's what I did <laughs> and we decided we wanted right well you know this when you say bringing the science into the picture I completely understand and support that and, and Dr. Tedesco I think you are the scientist here and so when you're looking at this is it sounds like a real world in situ experiment we're going to actually on a sort of a landscape scale test out some sediment management practices and see if we can sort of keep up with the health of the marsh and the mm -hmm. sea level changes can you talk about from a scientific standpoint how is this living lab going to be operated is it sort of the standard scientific, let's have a hypothesis, let's do some testing, let's do some results? What's, how does this work? Yeah, that's a great question. It's the hard part as the scientist in this when you kind of go out and look at these projects. I think there's a couple of important differences. Um, we're accepting that we're going to do something, and we're accepting that we're going to have an impact to the marsh. And I think um, you got to get away from the we'll do no harm kind of aspect, and I think that's been a key part for me to get past. We know we're going to have change, but the status quo out in these systems is they're changing anyway. We're losing them. So it opens up things a little bit more in terms of the conservative nature we might want to take. Normally, as scientists, I'd say, well, let's watch it. Let's study it. Let's see what's going to happen. Then okay. we figure that out. Um, should we do a little? And the answer is that's just not going to work in these systems. So by definition, we created a living laboratory, and we created it where we did for two reasons. We have, the Wetlands Institute's been there for 50 years. We have a lot of background information. We understand, you know, to the extent you can, these systems. We know what the questions are. We sort of, and we can watch them closely. So we picked a place uh, for two reasons. We picked a place because we're there, and we can look at it every day. Uh, we can be out there. We can monitor it intensely. Um, and I would argue in these systems, we're actually monitoring the results more than the before. Um, and then the Army Corps has in the state of New Jersey and, and the people of New Jersey have a, an ongoing problem where there are two plugs in the channel that, you know, you just can't navigate past these two. And then the okay. other benefit is one of them is sandy. One area is sandy and the other area is muddy. So if I want to try to figure That's it great. out, I've got, Good. it's just perfect. I have yeah, all the is. components. Um, Monica and the Army Corps is going to be there kind of forever because those problems are there. Um, so it was just a natural, you know, we've got a resource, we've got a research and conservation organization. The other benefit of the Wetlands Institute is we do a huge amount of outreach. Uh, we talk to the public a lot, people come in. So we have the ability to share what's happening 
in a very open, transparent way. We're not hiding anything about what's happening out there. People understand we're taking risk, and hey, we're going to make mistakes. Um, and that's why the Living Lab is really important. And I would say, you know, the, the, the lessons we learn and our ability to translate that and get that information out quickly is important. So in that way, it's different yeah. than um, we're not going to study it for five years before we write a paper and tell, say Got what it. happened. We're going to see what's happened right away, and we're going to try to drive that. We want, we need the contractors. You know, the biggest thing that happens is we come up with these great ideas, and then you stand there and go, huh, how do you build that? Yeah. And, um, and I think so when I think about it from an innovative perspective, it's innovative for the way we think about it. It's innovative from figuring out how to do it. So we need the, we need the industry, the dredging industry has to be along for this ride or we're not going to get very far. Yep, you need the horsepower. There's, we're moving things around and it's, <clears throat> it's construction. And, and it just makes so much sense to me what you're describing there as it's going to change anyway. The core has got a problem. You know they're going to be actors. I think it's fantastic that that the, the core is working hand in hand with scientists and the environmental community to try to figure out practices that are beneficial and preserve the resource. People think that the core doesn't think about the environment, and it's not true. If you spend time with core staff people who are working on these tough coastal problems, there is an, they, there are a whole bunch of heartfelt environmental people in the Corps of Engineers. It's really not the reputation, at least a lot of people that I know. But it's not enough to go ahead. So I, you, you missed a component of that, and I would say the natural resource managers. And okay. when you get to start talking to these people a lifetime, you know, they care. Every person in that space cares about the resource. And if you talk to them and you find out who they are and what they are, almost every single one of them will tell you about their relationship with these ecosystems. Right. They walked in marshes as a kid. They loved the beach. Every one of them has a connection to that area. So it really is kind of insulting when people think yeah. that these people don't care. Everybody cares. And the question, uh, what I've seen, is when people understand that change is coming and the status quo is failure. Yeah. They're willing to take more of a risk. But a key person, it's the Army Corps, it's the scientists and engineers, but it's also the natural resource managers. And ultimately, I think they're the ones that are going to be the ones that take the risk from the permitting perspective yeah. that holds things up. So our friends at National Marine Fisheries and U.S. Fish and Wildlife and the State Department of Natural Resources people, all of those folks who have to put their stamp on this stuff when they're taking a little bit of a chance. I want to ask Steve a question because we're talking about something that is a good idea. You go out to Santa Cruz, you meet with these international people, they start talking about living labs, you're working on problems. I love the fact that you said all over the world people are trying to deal with sea level rise and marshes. This is not a U.S. or a Northeast problem. This is about the world's coast. And, and, but it's not enough to have a good idea. You have to be able to put this in the framework of the Corps of Engineers, which is legislative important what they, the court if there's anybody who's hidebound by legislative authorization it's the Corps of Engineers you can it's not just enough to have a good idea you got to be able to find a way within the core structure uh, Steve there's that and there's the public perception how do you deal with making these innovative projects operate within the core ecosystem well we're fortunate to have two really talented um, champions and so these guys have talked to anyone and everyone at every opportunity to push these, build the momentum, um, educate. You know, with the Corps of Engineers, our mission is so diverse and the process is so complex, like you said, that most of our communication is really about just educating, explaining it, um, trying to get through. That's why this meeting is great. That's why the podcast is great, because it gives us the time that we need to kind of give some of that nuance and really explain things. But we're fortunate to have two great champions and others uh, who have been part of the partnership 
and they've really just pushed this and the momentum is building and regionally it's there's uh, there's a lot that can happen so that's great it's exciting because you know these the core colonels come in they've got a three-year stint all of these core district commanders who come through and the simple thing to be was you know we've got a practice we've got confined upland disposal it's already permitted we know how to do it the contractors know where to do we've been doing it forever flip the switch keep the channel open thanks a lot see you later zero risk really from that from sort of the when you come through and you say, listen, there's, this has got to be rethought from square one, that requires some initiative on the part of the leadership in the core. It changes the budgeting. It changes the planning. It changes the design. I mean, how much work has it been for you guys to, to build this? Yeah, I think um, an important aspect to note, too, for our state is that um, there is a cost efficiency in doing this too. So those confined facilities are limited in capacity. We're running out of them in New Jersey. We share those with the state and the locals. Um, and right now the, the cost in the state of New Jersey is $50 a cubic yard just to empty them. That's Ooh. just to buy capacity. So wow. it's a huge price tag. So from, you know, when you ask Steve about how we can do these two, in the operations world, um, we have to get to the most cost-effective, operational, yeah. efficient way to, to clear these channels, and and it's moving in that direction. So wow. if we don't have over-regulations and we can get to these more natural processes, we're also cost-effective, too, and we can do more with less dollars. Now we're talking. Yeah. I think, in Steve, in your universe, in budgets and public policy and legislation and core appropriations, uh, Finding a way to manage the stuff that is environmentally better and cheaper is the golden ticket, it seems to me. If you can actually, so you're saving money, you're not having the $50 to, to take a cubic yard to take the material out of these confined, that's a really high price. Right. Uh, and, it's not, and it's not sound to do that. So it's this, it, it, this is the federal standard, least cost environmentally sound, right? It's got to be the lowest cost option. And it's turning out that there's an environmentally beneficial way to do this that's the least cost. Aren't we all happy about that? Yeah, these projects have <laughs> multiple fair. benefits. That's, and so that's, that's, really, that's really powerful when we talk to people about them, that we're, we're improving safe navigation, there's environmental, there's social benefits. And so that just strengthens the case because, like you said, the projects are competing nationwide. And so... When we're able to kind of point to those things and successes, it definitely makes a difference. Okay, so I, I okay, go ahead. Yeah, Monica. I just wanted to say on the policy side too, um, we've seen an incredible shift within the state of New Jersey um, with their acceptance of these types of projects and in, in terms of their coastal zone management policies and um, and their their willingness to try different things. In the last five years, it's just done a complete turnaround. Hmm. And to the point they even uh, appointed somebody, um, Mr. Dave Fans, to, to have his role be to help us with beneficial use projects and keeping the sediment in the system. He recently retired, and I asked him, you know, how do we get past all these retirements? And, you know, when I retire and Lenore retires, yeah. how do we keep this going for the yeah. long term? And, it, and his response was the policy needs to back it up. So it's not just the momentum and the cost. It has to be the policy beyond us that changes and really gets to this uh, long-term right. sustainability of these well, practices. The core is good at building systems that withstand time. I think <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I want to ask uh, uh, Dr. Tedesco if you could. As a layperson and not really familiar with the dredge management practices, and the, but what we're trying to do is get the sediment out of the channel and to get it into the marsh system in a way that is conducive to the marsh's growth and long-term health and all of that stuff. 
how do you do that? I mean, how, I mean, just mechanically, um, you know, you can't sort of rain it down from above. I mean, what, how is this done in a way that's environmentally sound? Yeah, well, that is the big question. <laughs> that's the um, trick, right? Well, you know, and, and just to be the stick in the mud a little bit, no pun intended, is that um, these, they're difficult projects to do, and especially from an, an environmental perspective. And we, we can um, overdo it and, and knock some of these marshes back. And, and a big question we have is, do you work in healthy marshes and keep them healthy? Do you work in failing marshes because they're going to fail anyway and try to get them back up? Um, where do you spend your time and effort? And that's an important question. I don't know that yeah. I have an answer to that. Because um, anything we do on these marshes for these projects is a disturbance to the marsh. There's no question that's what it is. And you have to go in expecting that, right? We're going to put mud on the marsh. Um, the Mississippi River, they, you know, we learned there that the levees stop that natural kind of every time there's a flood, you get a little bit of mud up there. Um, and we shut that off, right? So that's kind of an easy way to put it back there. You talked right. about the berms on the, in, the, in the littoral zone on the front beach. That's easy. You kind of put it out there. You yeah. get a little bit here and there. It's okay. Yeah. So how do you do that from a cost-effective way onto the marsh platform? And, and um, we're still learning about that. There's something called thin layer placement where you, you know, the idea is can we just put a little bit out there? And, and um, the answer is no, because you can't engineer it a little uh, to go mm -hmm. in a lot of places. So you have to accept that you're going to bury a part of a marsh. Um, and then the key is where to, to how deep, to how long, to how far. Right. And, and, the, and basically you're pumping mud up on the marsh. And then the, the question is how high do you go? And the answer is it depends on how long you want that marsh to be high so if you accept that um i want that marsh to be healthy 20 years from now you're saying it's not going to be healthy for the first five years um because you right yeah. you change the elevation and by changing yep. the elevation you change the marsh yeah so having those questions and those goals um are important so you're going to give away some marsh function now and gain it later if i put a, a project out there and it the marsh regrows in a year the answer is i probably didn't gain very much because it's going to drown again in three to five years. So yeah. it, it really depends on what you want to do. And, and, and that's a policy question. That's, a, that's a, an ecological goal for, for a project. Um, some of the projects we've done are specifically not trying to do that. We've created um, elevated nesting habitat by building, taking marsh that was kind of drowning and saying, you know what, we're going to turn it over. We're going to make it high marsh. We're going to make it five feet high yeah. um, relative to, to, to the water level so that it's, you know, two to three feet higher than the flooding level. And we want to do that because birds need a place to nest. They're struggling. Mm -hmm. Their nests are being flooded on the front beach. They're competing with people and dogs and, and recreational uses, so they have no, no place to go. Yeah. We just took away their place to go. So the argument is we can keep fighting that battle, which we've done. We spent a lot of money. Uh, trying to create nesting habitat for uh, beach nesting birds, um, sometimes without great, great results, um, and we can just create a place in the marsh and let them go there. And we did that. So we basically said, we, we know we're not going to have a marsh here, but if I do this on an acre in a 12,000-acre marsh, yeah, can I do that? And when you do that and you end up with birds that have nested in the back bays in New Jersey since the 80s and they show up a year after you put it out there, the answer is, yeah, we can do Good that. When stuff. you have 200 species, you know, you have all these nesting birds that are being successful, um, you kind of get the, okay, these are my trade-offs. So, so it's really a question about what is the trade-off and are you willing to do it? And that's where you need the partnership. That's where you need the scientists. That's where you need the course. Yeah. Well, I need the bang for the buck in terms of it needs to be, you know, we just talked about taxpayer dollars. We've got to be using taxpayer dollars well. So um, if the Corps can do that cheaply, easily, if we get an environmental benefit that the state yeah. really wants in terms of threatened state endangered birds are now doing pretty well on these sites. And then as a, you know, as a wetland scientist, I could say, okay, I gave that up. 
And even if we walk away from it and never maintain it again, if I go and look at that site, 20 years from now, that's probably the high marsh that's out here. And yeah. I know that because as a geologist, you know, hindsight's that whole 2020 thing. If I go out and look out at these vast marsh areas, the only high marsh that's out there anymore, because of sea level rise, turns out that their prior placement sites from 50, 70, 100 years uh, ago, nice. when somebody came through and Happy dredged the intracoastal waterway and put that <laughs> material exactly on the marsh. So, so, you know, we used to do that. Mm -hmm. And now when you go out there and look, the interesting thing that Monica alluded to for these projects was the, the state didn't want, us, didn't want them to go back to those sites because they were such high value habitat that was wow. built by dredge material. So when you kind of get over the, hey, we've done this, we know this works. Yeah. Um, what if we go to those places now that that habitat is degrading because of sea level rise or, yeah. or succession? It's changed from what the intent was from the use that it became. And let's be honest, back in you know in the 60s, 50s, 40s, 30s, 20s, no one really cared about the environmental no, they were, side of it. They were just getting thinking, rid of the material, right? Yeah, but it turns out they were doing some stuff that was good. They were doing some stuff that was good. So trying yeah. to teach those lessons and use those those hindsight lessons, how long did you have? And then you can look at, you know, you can be strategic on a systems approach. I want to, you know, the whole idea what we're trying to get to is systems approach. These one-off projects where somebody goes in and, and, you know, it's the Army Corps or the state, um, whoever it is, or even private folks, go in and try to build a project. If you do a one-off project, the costs right. are still really, really high because of all the engineering and the permitting. But if we can create a systems response that says, hey, this portion of the channel needs to be dredged, um, yeah. first to clear it because it hasn't been cleared in 20 years, and then to maintain it. We can create systems or projects that do that. Now I have the ability to basically engineer my marsh and say, okay, I'm going to lose this. This is going to go to that. This can be high marsh later. This can be nesting habitat. You start being able to just, you know, jump back, take a 30,000-foot view and say, if I look out at this marsh 20 years from now, what am I going to see? That's really a powerful thing in Very. terms of thinking what we're going to do. There is, that is a home run. I mean, and there's so much in what you just laid out, which is, first of all, there's nothing simple on shoreline management. I mean, the, the complexity of the issues that are involved in the judgment that you were laying out there is really intricate. And you're saying, you know, how do we make this stick? You know, when I retire and, and Monica, when you retire and, and uh, Dr. Tedesco retires in the state, people, you know, there has to be a way to keep this wisdom alive. And it's going to take more than the policy, but it's this regional sediment management, this bigger picture, the 30,000 foot view, looking at this systematically and being smart about it. And I think we're smart enough to do this. I, I honestly do. I think we can be, there's enough experience, as you said, uh, in the system. Uh, it does require some creativity and some adjustment. But can you talk about this as a systems issue? Because it really kind of flows into this idea of regional sediment management, regional thinking. How does that color the picture here for the Corps of Engineers? Well, I think it, it definitely provides us a, a cost-effective way to look at clearing the channels because, um, as doc, Dr. Tedesco said, we already have everything permitted, be ready to go, so we get at the cost and, um, and, and the, some of the pain goes away to do some of these projects. I think one thing we haven't talked about is adaptive management, too, okay. as part of regional sediment management. Um, where we assume some of the, the, we put controls on, on the risk or some of the fears or some of what if this happens or that happens by building adaptive management right up front into these design, okay, uh, design me, of the systems. Let's, let's teach that you know, for the folks, that I, I kind of am familiar generally with the concept, but I think a lot of people may not be. So tell us what it means when you talk about adaptive management and how that is built into a design process. What does that mean really? 
So adaptive management by design, a, a natural and nature-based feature or beneficial use, you know, natural project is going to change. Mother Nature is going to change the elevation. It's going to she's going to move sediment around. Um, they're not you're not going to build a wall and not have it change. It's going to change, and so. If there's some unknowns or some of the resource agencies have concerns about that, we need to kind of understand those up front and understand the risk of what we're building and doing. We have a model for this um, in the core we already do on the, on the ocean front. So when we build a beach nourishment project, yep. every three to six years, whatever we've designed into that project, we re-nourish that project. So we don't just build it once and walk away. No. We come back every three to six years and we say, oh, well, this is what it looks like now. We need to add some sediment to get it back up to where it needs to be. And in some of our pilots, Ring Island and, and eventually Great Flats and Mordecai Island, we have realized that and gone back and added sediment in a very um, sculpted or detailed way. So um, we had to kind of prove to the state and the resource agencies that we could do that from a construction standpoint. And you asked the question, how do you do that? If we're only pumping 1,000 or 2,000 cubic yards, how do we do that? Right. Um, we've worked hand-in-hand -hand with our, our dredger, Barnegat Bay Dredging, did our pilots, um, and with the government um, plant out of our Wilmington, North Carolina district to say, how do we go back in and adaptively manage with small quantities? And we've been able to do that. We've been able to prove that it's cost-effective for us. And um, in, in the case of the small shoal by Ring Island, for the first time in 20 years, that channel is now cleared with this main project, the, the initial construction project, and then adaptive management of, mm -hmm. of lifting the site. So wow. I think that's key moving forward, that we have to think of these projects in, in that system's approach. And by building multiple sites, we can now go to the state and to Dr. Tedesco and say which one needs to be adaptively managed. I have to, the, man, yeah, it, it, the idea of adaptive management is it's, it's, it's the products are not a single shot anymore. I mean, they never were really, but uh, you're trying to anticipate how the environment will respond to the perturbation you're introducing the project, which you hopefully is positive and anticipate that a little bit and think through how we're going to adjust in response to those conditions and try to help the regulators see the path forward. All of that sort of driven to the goal. What we're trying to do is improve marsh health and keep the channels navigable at a low cost. I mean, that's fundamentally the objective. Um, I have to ask, I really have to ask you, Monica, what is it like for you and the Corps of Engineers to be the leader innovator in this discussion? <laughs> because, you know, when I think about all of the experience I've had with the Corps of Engineers, it's just never been the case where the Corps of Engineers is trying to convince people to be more open-minded about processes and new ideas. <laughs> I don't mean to be biased, but I really do have to ask you, is that striking to you? Because <laughs> it's striking to me. <laughs> If that's unfair, that may be a bias on my part, yeah. but I really, you know, it's like you guys are out here trying to get people to think more creatively, and, you know, this doesn't always go together in how people think about the Army Corps of Engineers. You know what I'm saying? If, I, you, know, I, if you mind me being honest. I think I want to say thank you. Right? <laughs> but um, I think it's a, a very good point. Um, my background as a coastal engineer, and you, you alluded to it in the, in, the, in the coast, nothing's as predictable as if you're designing a bridge, right? right. So just in my background and training, it's that way. I also spent five years of my initial career with our research and development lab doing coastal research. So 
I'm, I'm highly backed by the R&D arm of the core to yeah. do a lot of this work, and, and I think that's critical. So we can incorporate all this into standard business practice, but we need the R&D labs to be back in that innovation. And then every district, I haven't been doing it single-handedly, there's between the R&D lab, but there's a Mobile and Galveston and Baltimore districts have supported us because they have the same types of people that are yeah. wanting to do the right thing with the sediment. So it's, um, I think you need some of the leaders, not only the senior leaders in the Corps of Engineers to embrace this change, and they are. I, I had an opportunity to speak to them on Monday, the generals and the colonels, and Great. they're supporting this, but also the leaders in each of our districts that are willing to step out of their box and say this is, this is the way to go that's sustainable moving forward. Far out. I'm so happy to hear that. Uh, Dr. Tedesco, you're the executive director at the Wetlands Institute. As you said, you've been present on the New Jersey shoreline for 50 years, this organization. T tell our audience about the Institute a little bit and your the history of your relationship in managing these kind of issues. T fill us in a little bit about what you're bringing to the table as an organization. Yeah, so the Wetlands Institute is celebrating its 50th year this year, and it's an actually a remarkable story. Um, I think we can say we've always been at the forefront of looking out and seeing the need to do something to step up to steward wetlands. The founding director, um, founding uh, executive was actually the World Wildlife Fund. It was the guy who was in charge of the World Wildlife Fund and he understood, he was talking about coastal resilience in, in 1968. Wow. And uh, he, Man. you know, we didn't realize that's what he was saying, but he was talking about the widespread loss. Then we were losing marshes to, to filling and development and um, just digging up marshes and he understood and he was talking about the value of wetlands for coastal resilience. He was talking about storm protections of wetlands and losses of fisheries and uh, he convinced the World Wildlife Fund to buy, just buy acreage. Uh, he partnered with the state at the time which predates, you know, we we're predating the EPA, we we're predating the Clean Water Act, we we're predating wow. all these protections and he ended up buying more than 6,000 acres. Uh, raised private funds to buy all this acreage and th that acreage was ultimately transferred to the state um, for those protections, it became the Cape May uh, Wildlife Management Area, um, so it's managed in perpetuity as uh, open wetlands. So he stepped up then, but he also understood people didn't understand wetlands from a research um, perspective, and he also understood the public didn't understand wetlands, uh, you know, quagmires and all the negative effects of, mm -hmm. of what a wetland is. Um, and he picked the spot where he put the Wetlands Institute. The idea was to put it in the wetlands wow. so people can see it and come to it. Um, and that's really been our three-pronged mission has been research, conservation, and education for those 50 years. We have incredible data sets. It was um, the biological field station for Lehigh University for almost 20 years. So the wealth of, of science and knowledge and learning in those ecosystems is dramatic. Um, and then when I came in, I've done a lot of wetland restoration. Um, I came in, in in 2011 and looked at the organization. They had drifted a little bit from that research core mission. Uh, but in the interim time, they had built an incredible outreach and education component. We, we deal with more than 17,000 visitors a year. We have 12,000 kids come through um, to connect. So connecting people to nature. So he understood people have to understand these yeah. ecosystems and the importance of them to get anywhere in terms of the policy side of this. Um, and I came in and I saw change and I saw wetlands that were struggling. And this is, you know, I would say, you know, Herbert Mills was the founder. The seminal issue for him was stopping, was, was having a wetland to be out there. 
um, and when I came in, I think the seminal issue of my time is how do we keep these wetlands here for, you know, he did it, he got his part right. in keeping generations there. And I'm looking out and saying how, how are these marshes here for the next round, of, next generation and for the wildlife that's there. So we're advocates for, for coastal communities, but we're advocates for the marsh and the, and the inhabitants of those marsh, whether they be feathered or, or uh, clams and filter feeders, whatever they are. Mm -hmm. the, um, the wisdom is ours to convince people, Great. you know, that it needs to be here for the future. And, and it's, it's been... Uh, it's been a real honor to be able to steward this organization forward. I love the I love the notion of wisdom. There's 50 years of experience there. It's great to you have to be effective in the public arena. I think Steve knows this as a, as a person who's in legislative affairs and public affairs. You do have to communicate with the public. You do have to bring them along and understanding. You know, it used to be marshes are just uh, you know mosquitoes and we need to drain them and fill them in and they're horrible. <laughs> Changing that mindset took a lot of work by people all over the world. Uh, but it's the wisdom that you have and then bringing the science back to the p pinnacle of the organization and to really understand how to, you know, like, I think this is quite 100% true. We work and live and change the coast of America every day and we're using it for recreation and real estate and things and shipping and I mean we are on top of this space. And uh, there are areas, thankfully, that are set aside, that are sort of insulated a little bit from the intensity of use that we can do as Americans. Um, but being able to get into the system where, the, where, the, where, where we're making serious use of these resources, but do it in a better way, that's what y'all are on the cusp of trying to figure out here. Um, and, and it's exactly that. I'm just very happy to have you guys on the show. This is the avenue. This is the pathway forward. And it has to be the pathway all over America, which is really this very tight connection between the folks who've got the revenue and the responsibility, the core, the experts at, at the agency, and then the scientific community outside in the public kind of doing a better job on the American shoreline. I think it's fantastic. Really great. I just love it. Um, but I want to know less. Tell us a little bit more about what you hope the Seven Mile uh, Island project will ultimately do. When and how long is this experiment going to be run? What What are you hoping to actually get out of it? What are your goals and objectives for this project? I, I guess I'll start from my perspective. So, we've kicked it off with a um, initial meeting in April of last year, and we have our follow up meeting in December with a with a work group, a stakeholder work group. We've also started data collection as of September, so to add some science to it. Um, and then we're taking it from there, but we're looking at two innovative placements over the next year. So we have a dredge a company under contract. We have the sediment that needs to be um, dredged quickly. The Coast Guard's um, very um, concerned about the amount of material in the channel, so we have an urgency to get the channel clear. And that's going to push us all to move in very quickly into some innovation and progress in terms of this actual living lab. Yeah. On a bigger front, um, talking with our Galveston district, talking with our San Francisco districts, I think we're smaller scale in terms of sediment quantities. Um, they have larger scales, bigger channels, but the opportunities and the challenges are going to inform each other. So I think, you know, I'd love to see this. We don't know when it's going to end. You know, right now we're starting off with um, funding from the navigation channel to help further some of these placements in Great. our district. But I think the innovation between those other districts and the R&D labs and taking this to a different scale 
and getting at some of the opportunities and challenges is, is really where I'd like to see it go. Great. So it's kind of a pilot program to let's see if we can figure it out economically, financially, legally, permitting-wise, in addition to the technical parts of it. And see if we can. What about for you in in your organization's involvement in this program with the core? What is it that your objectives and goals of of this system that you're in, this project you're in? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And I can think about it on different fronts. I can say, as a scientist, I think you know, what are we doing? You know, we've moved past, I think, the do no harm to how do we help. And what does that look like? So I see those, uh, all of those questions being asked. I, and we ask them, you know, I have a, a great, great science team um, with different interests, whether we're talking about um, habitat creation, habitat protection, marsh restoration, or marsh uh, stewardship and protection. But we also have an incredible relationship with our coastal community and the people that live, you know, we all live there. And um, the Seven Mile Island, these barrier islands, um, what do they look like? What does the future look like for them? So when I get out and talk to people, it's what are we doing to, to, keep, to keep these systems um, looking something like today? Um, I don't think they will look the same. And it's questions, can we engineer our way out of what's happening on the coast? And I think it's going to be that combination. And so I think about it as ecological engineering, how are we using um, Mother Nature to help us out of this? We can't, yeah. we can't do it all with hard infrastructure. I mean, there's just no way. We can't do it all with soft infrastructure either. So how do these things come together? And I think. Um, engineering with nature is, is a solution set to that. How do we keep some of this green um, infrastructure happening? So I think, so from my perspective, it, it, it's both sides. I, I work very closely with the municipalities that surround this area. Um, they had to move, uh, Stone Harbor had to use, move more than 100,000 cubic yards of mud to keep the, you know, the boaters, get people's docks in the water. And they ended up, you know, dewatering it on a parking lot and trucking it off. They did damage to roadways and, yeah. and it, where did it go? and and then everybody that on the receiving end of it, the people in the communities where they stacked 100,000 cubic yards of mud, hated it because it was smelled bad, and then sure. they trucked it off, and, and it was like, what are we doing here? Yeah, so, thank you. So from my perspective, um, you know, the, the relationship with the Army Corps is because we have the guns to get at yeah. the engineering and get at the solutions. Yeah. But for my goal, I'd like to, you know, and I have people all the time walking to my office and say, how, do you, how is what you're doing going to ultimately help me, whether I'm a small marina owner or just, you know, the municipality that can't afford you know, to wait every 10 years. They're, they're, they're looking at, they basically put aside a half a million dollars a year out of their budget so they have a bankroll to be able to dredge the back bays again. Wow. There's a lot of communities that can't do that. Yeah. So just in terms of the quality of life, and like I said, I spend a lot of time with people that either want to just look at, you know, the people that live in these areas, they've already self-selected. They understand the value and the beauty of these systems. They want to be there. They want to use them. They understand they're important for fisheries. You know, you talk about half of the commercial fisheries rely on these wetlands and these marshes. So huge value yeah. across the board. And um, and how do we take that down to where this is beneficial for the average community? Um, so I see it across that spectrum, and we have the opportunity. We couldn't do it. You know, the, the institute and the municipalities couldn't put on this experiment. So, right. so partnering with these guys just gives us, you know, the big guns are in the room, let's get something big done, the state's well involved, said. and then how do we bring this down so that it's an everyday practice. These shouldn't be the, un, the, un, the exception. Right now they're the exception. We talk about them, look what we're doing. This shouldn't be the conversation. Ten years from now, this better not be the conversation. Correct. I, I think that's true. It shouldn't. But it takes this kind of innovative approach to get this stuff seeded mm-hmm. and developed and understood. Because you're right. What the public is going to say or the local government is going to say is, listen, we care about the, we need, the boaters here are giving us a raft of problems. <laughs> and if we don't fix this, so the core of it, just dredge it. We don't care about this. There's that tension, that pressure. 
but you're trying to get to a system that is responsive to that public need of the waterway, which is fundamental to the Corps' mission, and then doing it right and managing it. Well, I, this is the work of the American shoreline right here. This is how it has, I think this is the model. This is how you have to do it because it's this multi-level engagement and really, your, uh, uh, Dr. Tedesco's organization's connection with the local community is so critical to the success because it's what gives the whole idea credibility and let people calm down a little bit. We're working on this and it's going to be environmentally sound and we're, you're going to have the channels you need, but our marshes are going to be better. I mean, that's just, it's this linkage. Well, and people can see it. I think yeah. that's the other key. You know, we talk about people frequently, you know, they hear about climate change, they hear about sea level rise, but they don't really know how it affects them until, you know, the, the road's flooded. Oh, that's, that's, you know, flooding. Why is that happening? It happens a lot now. Well, the marshes are flooded. Why does that happen? So can, making those connections, that this is what is happening, see it, see climate change, this is it. It's happening right now. It's already happening. It's already changing things. So then the key is, well, what did we do about it? You know, there's a lot of talk, but there's very little something we did. So when people boat by and they know what that is now, or they, you know, I get calls from people, we never used to see black skimmers. I, it must be something you did. What did you guys do? So, so people seeing the, the change, and I think that's the other part of the Living Lab. It's, it is that outreach. It's our ability to, to talk about people. It's boating, the boating community going by and having them telling their friends that what's happening here, and that is what's happening with this, with this project. So I don't want to miss that side of it. I know Steve appreciates that side of it. It's how do you get people to engage, and they're engaged, and they're engaging in this process, and well, it's pretty cool. I, what I'd like to say is, uh, and Steve, please, you're what we want to keep up with you on this project, and why don't we do every couple of months, every three, every quarter, do a little update on how it's going up on the Seven Mile Island project, and the, and the work that you're doing together at the core would be really great. We'd love to have you guys regularly kind of report to the listeners because it's a, it's. If we can show how it's done, and the re it's the relationships that are so critical here that I think is a key part of it. Uh, the willingness of the leadership at the Philadelphia District and the state agency people who have to take a little bit of a chance here to change the current paradigm. Um, we'd love to follow along with you. That'd be great. You know, share that. As a f I'm a fan of your podcast, and I think I've learned a lot. I think a lot of your listeners have, and it just... For us to get the opportunity to talk about the nuances of this stuff and, and give it the time that it deserves yeah. is just fantastic. So I think we're open to that. Fantastic. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, from the Atlantic Intercoastal Waterway Association meeting in Savannah, Georgia, Steve Rochette, the Public and Legislative Affairs uh, Director for the Philadelphia District of the Army Corps of Engineers, Dr. Lenore Tedesco, the Executive Director of the Wetlands Institute, and Monica Chaston from the uh, Army Corps of Engineers Philadelphia District, the uh, Project Manager for Channels on the New Jersey Shoreline. So thank you guys for joining us and sharing this really great story with our listeners. Thank you for giving us the opportunity. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Pearls on the long sunlight.